we're going to continue our series and actually wrap up our series entitled Emmanuel. Uh, over the past seven weeks, we've talked about uh, seven different concepts revolving around the Christmas season as we lead up to Christmas as a way we hope that we'll just kind of prepare our hearts as we step into uh, the season, not to get overwhelmed with all the secularization of Christmas, but to really hone in on the purposes of God in the Christmas events. And so uh, over the past seven weeks, we, we started by talking about the problem of sin that led to the necessity of Christmas. We had to have the incarnation of Christ as a remedy for our sin. We talked about the plan of God through Christmas the prophecies of the Old Testament pointing to a Messiah in Christmas, the people, Joseph, Mary, uh, all the shepherds, so many people, uh, characters that played a role in these events, the pleasure and the pain of Christmas. Last week, we talked about the proclamations of Christmas, the, the things that were said and sung by so many different people uh, in the Christmas events. And tonight, we're going to wrap it up by talking about the purposes of Christmas. Now, Initially, when you hear somebody say, well, what is the purpose of Christmas, especially in Christian circles, uh, the answer is, well, God sent Jesus to save us. The, the natural inclination is to say that Christ came to save us. And while that is absolutely and forever eternally true, and we thank God for that, uh, the reality is this, is that there were many reasons that Christ came. Salvation uh, is simply uh, kind of the floodgates that open that give us so many other benefits in our relationship with God. And so, although, yes, it is about salvation, that is the primary purpose that God came, uh, there are many other purposes that are tied to that. And so tonight what we're going to do, I'm going to walk you through 20 different uh, purposes for Christ to come to life uh, or to come through the incarnation. Now, uh, 20, that's a lot. We only have so much time. So many of these, obviously, we're just going to say and keep going and we'll camp out on a couple and kind of uh, expound on those kind of things. But for the first few, what I want to do is I want to set the stage for you. Um, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is uh, basically, he's coming into his own as far as ministry goes. Jesus is in Nazareth. He is going to preach his first sermon in a synagogue. And in this, what Jesus does is he outlines for us several different purposes for his coming. Now, um, when people would come to a synagogue, it was very different than coming to the temple, okay? Um, the temple, I know sometimes in uh, Christian circles, we can kind of use those terms synonymously, um, but they were very different places. The temple, there was one temple, the temple was in Jerusalem, but there were many, many different synagogues throughout the land of Israel. And basically, they served different purposes. The, the temple of God was where sacrifices were made. It was where uh, the people would descend on the Day of Atonement and Passover and different things like that. And the temple was primarily used for sacrifice. So this is when all the animals would come. They would be slaughtered for the forgiveness, the remission of sin, etc. The synagogues were more like um, little little townships. They were they were kind of like small churches in small towns. As a matter of fact, um, it was it was by law that if you had um, more than ten families within a small area, like a village, that it was required by the Jews that you have a synagogue established. And so people would kind of go into the synagogues, and uh, it was much more of a relaxed setting. It, there was structure. 
scripture, but it was more like a way of living for the people. And so people could come and they could have discussions about religious things, but it kind of evolved and it become just kind of a, a hub for the people of the village so that they could handle common business. And so um, when we see Jesus arrive here at the synagogue, um, basically what happened in, uh, what, from what we understand from historians is that a service in a synagogue would basically have three different structure. It would be structured in three different ways. So the first thing that would happen when uh, there would be an organization of the people coming together, they'd be assembled, and then there would be like an opening prayer, kind of like how we do on Sunday mornings. There's an, an opening prayer, and we begin in worship, and we may spend some time in worship. Um, their worship or prayer was not quite as extended as ours in the synagogue, but somebody would come and they would open with an exaltation of the Lord and they would pray for their time together. Um, the second component would be the reading of scripture. This is what would uh, take the most time. And basically what would happen is that they would gather several different people who would read from designated portions of scripture. And as they read, there was someone who would interpret to make sure if you spoke Aramaic, you could understand the language. If you spoke Greek, you could understand it if you did not speak Hebrew. And so there was a lot going on when they would kind of assemble together. But the third and maybe um, one of the most important features of this is they would have teaching or discussion. And this is where Jesus steps into this moment. Um, Usually, there would be discussion built around the text that was just written, or, or excuse me, just read. Uh, there would be discussion. They would expound upon it. Usually, there was a designated person that would kind of lead the discussion, but oftentimes, it would be open for other people to kind of contribute to the conversation. So, as Jesus steps into the synagogue, um, like I said earlier, it was the very beginning of his ministry. He had just come out of the wilderness. He was filled with the power of God through the Holy Spirit. He had just resisted temptation. He was about to launch into his first sermon, which would then launch into his first ministry. Um, this, this, this time frame in Jesus's life was often referred to as the Galilean springtime. And it was called that for, for two different reasons. Number one, Jesus began his ministry in the, in the area of Galilee, and so that's where a lot of the, the time was spent. But it was called the springtime, not because necessarily the time of the year that Jesus was there, but it was called that because Jesus's ministry had just come about, and it was new, and it was fresh, and it was eye-opening and it was beautiful and all of a sudden like the things that had been dead for hundreds of years through the, the, the 400 years of silence, all of a sudden things were beginning to awaken within people. The, the spirit of, of God was beginning to stir through the ministry of Jesus. And so they associate that with springtime. There's new life, there's new energy, there's excitement, there's beauty. It is an amazing time but it was an amazing time in the spirit realm. And so as Jesus steps into this moment, he begins to read a portion of scripture. The, um, the delegate kind of hands Jesus a scroll, he opens it, and it just so happens that he reads from the prophet Isaiah. And this is what scripture says in Luke chapter four. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll again, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so in Jesus's first sermon, he sets out the course of his ministry that these are the purposes, or at least a portion of the purposes that he came. And as his ministry begins, you'll begin to see it unfold. Now, before we start talking about these five or six different reasons that he proclaimed that he came, um, it's important to understand this. As Jesus is speaking here from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus is really talking about two different, um, there's kind of like a dual purpose in almost every statement that Jesus reads from Isaiah. Um, part of it has to do with the natural world in the natural realm, but there's also a component that takes place in the spirit realm. Right? So, for example, when Jesus says that he came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, Jesus was not saying, um, hey, you know, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to organize a group and we're going to go down to the local jail and anybody who's incarcerated, we're just going to set them free. If they're guilty, if they're innocent, it doesn't really matter. We're going to set them free. No. Jesus was not anti-establishment. Jesus was not anti, uh, you know, governing or laws or, you know, justice. He was not anti any of that. He wasn't coming to abolish the legal system. Jesus was basically saying, listen, for those who are held captive in a spiritual sense, those who are bound by addictions, those who are oppressed by demons or influenced demonically, um, I have come to set those prisoners free so that they don't have to be bound by those things anymore. And so Jesus is speaking in, in dual terms here. He's talking about things in the natural, but he's also talking about things that are related to the spirit, okay? And we kind of see that pattern as we go throughout most of these uh, purposes tonight. So in your notes, really quickly, number one, we find that Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. He says, I've, I've come to proclaim the good news to the poor. Now, again, what he's saying is he's saying, listen, um, if you are poor in the natural, that's okay because you can be wealthy in the spirit. You see what he's doing? He's doing this, this, this dual uh, application here. He's also saying that, listen, even if you're poor in this life, there's coming a new life. And in that new life, you're not necessarily going to be considered poor. You'll be considered rich. You understand what I'm saying? So, so he's saying that he's coming to proclaim this good news to the poor, but he's also saying, I'm not just coming to uh, share this gospel, this good news of salvation and hope for those who are wealthy. I'm also coming to those who are poor in this natural realm. And so in Jesus's, you know, fractions of, of a sentence, there is so much to unpack because he is not only speaking in one specific realm, but he's speaking in two different realms and each of those are, are very, very layered. And so he came to proclaim good news to the poor. Number two, we just talked about this. He came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Number three in your notes, he came to proclaim recovery of sight 
for the blind. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, he healed many, many blind people. Okay, uh, my son and I, in the mornings, we, we do devotions as we wait for his school time to start. And we were reading in the book of Mark today, and Jesus goes and he spits on his hands and places, you know, the, the, the saliva in the man's eyes. And the man, uh, all of a sudden, he's healed and he can see. It's, it's an incredible thing. So, so again, Jesus is speaking about uh, physical. I'm going to help them see physically. Yes, and he did that. And we need to believe that God can continue to do that today. We believe that. But he's talking more so about people being able to see with their spiritual eyes. That they wouldn't be blinded by sin. That they wouldn't be deceived by the enemy. But in a very like way, when, when Ananias goes to Paul, the Bible says that when Paul had seen the glory of Jesus, that it blinded him. When Ananias came and laid hands on him, the Bible says that something like scales fell from Paul's eyes and he regained his sight. He regained his vision. Well, that was definitely a physical thing for Paul because he couldn't see his hand in front of him. But it was also represents a spiritual sight for Paul. Now, all of a sudden, what he was once blind to, once he, the thing that he once went against and persecuted, he now sees clearly, and he now sees the purposes of God in that. And so, as Jesus comes to give recovery of sight to the blind, again, yes, it's for those in the natural, but far more importantly than seeing in the natural is being able to see in the spirit. And so, Jesus emphasizes that as well. Number four in your notes, Jesus tells us that he came to set the oppressed free, okay? Now, again, yes, this is talking about things in the spirit, that uh, if people are oppressed by evil, that Christ has come, that they don't have to live under the, the weight of oppression, that God can set them free from those things. But he's also talking about some things in the natural. Um, we do believe that that. Christianity as a movement should bring about some, some level of social reform, okay? We believe that people should be cared for on every demographic level and that, you know, no one should be treated differently because of their, you know, their uh, socioeconomic status or their race or any gender, anything like that. And Jesus proves that throughout his ministry, right? So Jesus throughout his ministry, who does he elevate? Who does he go after? He goes after the outcast the lepers, uh, the people that society doesn't want any part of? Who does he bring into his inner core? Women who are frowned upon in society or at least looked at less than men. Um, furthermore, beyond the Jewish community, Jesus himself goes to the Samaritans, which were probably more hated by the Jews than even Gentiles from other nations. Um, there was real division there. But Jesus comes and, and he begins to reform what relationships with other people should look like. And so, so yes, there, you know, Jesus is trying to break off spiritual oppression, but he's also trying to bring reform with how we view each other and how we treat one another. Okay? And so um, we, we realize that he's trying to break off that oppression to set us free. And then finally, number five, he proclaims that um, the the year, this is the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, something new is blowing. There is a wind that's coming that's going to change everything. There is a new covenant, a new way, and it's not just for our people, it's for all people. 
okay? So those five things Jesus specifically speaks about in Luke chapter 4 in his very first sermon. It's, it's profound. Now, throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see another 15 different ways, at least another 15 different reasons that Christ became a child. He grew into adulthood. We find these reasons scattered throughout the New Testament. Number six in your notes, we find that Jesus came to glorify the Father. Uh, in John 17, one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture, from John 14 to 17, just one of the most amazing portions of Scripture. Uh, in this, Jesus is praying to the Father just before the cross, and he says, Father, glorify your Son that your son may glorify you. There are times in Jesus's ministry where as he does something miraculous, he says, this was done for your benefit, but it was also to glorify the Father in heaven. And so, so much of what Jesus did um, was about the glory of God. And to be frank, um, this is perhaps one of the most overlooked aspects of Jesus's life and ministry. His purpose, part of his primary purpose was to be a reflection of the Father, to bring honor to the Father in heaven. And I think sometimes that kind of, that kind of scares us off a little bit. I remember a pastor was teaching one time on the fear of God in one of these sessions. And uh, those type of words, they kind of make us can make us confused if we don't have good, solid teaching uh, like that. Uh, but even the glory of God can be one of those things that are kind of confusing. We don't really understand because it almost seems as if God is self-absorbed, is if he is conceited or if he is all about himself. But the reality is this, it's none of that. It is an assurance. It is, it is a surety. He understands who he is. And he cannot, he cannot lessen himself beyond his glory. He can't speak against who he is. He cannot speak against his glory. He is who he is. And part of Jesus' purpose is so that people would understand that not only if the, if the Son of God is going to glorify the Father in his life, I need to be a person that glorifies the Father in my life. So number six, he came to glorify the Father. Number seven, he also came to reveal the Father. You remember uh, in scripture, he says, listen, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This is one of the statements of divinity that we, that we cling to in understanding that, that Jesus and the Father are, are one um, in being. Uh, so he came to reveal the Father. Number eight, he came to do the work of the Father. Uh, he says this in John chapter 17, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And so there was a purpose even in everything that Jesus did. I think sometimes when we read scripture, um, it's easy just to go through the incredible things and become so fixated on the miracles, the actual miracles that Jesus accomplished. But we've got to understand that it was far more than just an outward thing that Jesus was doing. He was fulfilling the will of God. God had given him a task list, and he was going to do the work of God in the earth again as, so that people could, could see who God is. Uh, number nine in your notes, he came to testify to the truth. Uh, in John 18, he said, in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 
Number 10, he came to serve. You remember this? Uh, for even the Son of Man did not come uh, to be served, but to serve. And as we've talked about so many times around here, um, it is counterintuitive. We don't expect a king to serve the peasants. We don't expect the president to serve the people. But Jesus said, listen, the greatest among you will be who? It'll be your servants, you know, and, and it's one of those, again, Jesus is modeling for us what godly leadership is. Number 11, in your notes, Jesus came to preach. I love this one. Jesus replied, the disciples had come after Jesus was in prayer all night. The disciples come to him, where have you been? What are you doing? The people are demanding things, and Jesus looked straight through them. And he said, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. It was a man on a mission. Number 12, he came to destroy the works of the devil. First uh, John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the, work, the devil's work. Um, it's one of these, these things, when, it, when we talk about Jesus destroying the works of the enemy, uh, it's another one of those things that can be complex because we say, well, the enemy has been defeated, but yet the enemy is still at work, right? And so it's a, it's a time frame, it's a time reference uh, thing like that. I kind of associate it with a person who is on death row there is no possibility of parole or escape or anything like that. Whether they die from the chair or the needle or natural causes, their end is already written. They, they will lose their life. It's just a matter of how this thing plays out. And so the way I like to say it is this, is that the forces of darkness in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they were disrupted in our present time, but ultimately destroyed. Right? They are ultimately destroyed. They're disrupted. So we can come and we can pray um, against demonic activity in the strong name of Jesus. And he will deliver people in this moment. But that does not necessarily mean that that demon is destroyed. But there's coming a day because of the work on the cross that that demon will be destroyed. Okay, and so it's this idea, uh, again, of, of time references and time frames. Jesus disrupted the work, and ultimately the work will be destroyed of the enemy. Number 13 in your notes, he came to fulfill the law. Uh, he says this um, in Matthew 5, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, uh, in church history, there was, there was a guy named Marcion, and he was basically labeled by the church fathers as a heretic. And the reason he was labeled that is because he believed that the Old Testament God was different than the New Testament God. Um, he believed that the Old Testament God was a God of wrath and vengeance and, and judgment. He believed that the God of the New Testament was filled with mercy and grace and flowers and tulips, you know, this kind of idea. And what he would do is basically say that we do not associate with the Old Testament God anymore. We don't associate with the Old Testament scriptures anymore. We only focus on what's in the New Testament. And in that, he found himself an error. 
Jesus, uh, even prophetically speaking, here he was saying, listen, I didn't come to do away with all that. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to complete it. Because what had to happen in order for the new covenant of grace, for the new era of grace to be able to begin, the old Mosaic covenant had to end. It had to end, but the only way for that covenant to end was for it to be completely fulfilled through the life of Jesus. And in his life, he fulfilled the law, he fulfilled the prophets, and thus in his resurrection, there began a new covenant. And so part of the purpose of Christ's coming was so that he could fulfill the law and begin a new covenant. Number 14 in your notes, Jesus came to identify with us. Uh, Hebrews 2, therefore it was necessary for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. So we're reminded in the prophet Isaiah that Jesus was rejected, that he was filled with grief, that his heart was burdened with sorrow, that he carried our weakness. We read in the New Testament that Jesus went through every temptation. Jesus came to identify with humanity. As a matter of fact, the only way that Christ doesn't identify with us is in sin. Um, 1 John 3, 5 says there was no sin in him. We believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, but beyond that, Jesus completely identifies with us on every level as part of the purposes of why he came. Number 15 in your notes, Jesus came to bring division and to bring unity, okay? Now, really quickly, I wanna talk about the, the supposed contradiction that people often find in scriptures, okay? So for example, when I say that Jesus came to bring division and unity, you may say, well, this, this piece doesn't fit to this puzzle. How can you bring division and how can you bring unity? And we read scriptures like this. So for instance, again, Isaiah 9, scripture says that the Messiah would be called the Prince of what? Peace. He'll be called the Prince of Peace. But then Jesus himself made this statement. He said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, at the birth of Christ, you know, the angelic host, they say, peace on earth, goodwill towards all men. So you, you find this moment of perplexity. You're like, wait, did he come to bring peace or did he, did he not come to bring peace? And the answer is yes, he came to bring peace and he also came to bring disruption. And oftentimes these contradictions that um, you may see in the Bible or people who are anti-Christian will kind of try to point out in different things. They're not really contradictions. Really, if you, if you take a good look and you really dig in to find out the, the truer meanings and layers behind all this, they're not contradictions at all. They're completions. They're helping us understand the whole picture of who God is. And so, for example, uh, when I say that Jesus came to bring division, but he also came to bring unity, this is what I mean. Jesus came to bring division between the sheeps and the goats, between those who would be the sons and daughters of God and those who would be the sons and daughters of Lucifer, those who would be saved and those who would be lost. The purpose of Christ's coming is to make a clear path and to say, these are with me, these are against me. 
So in that way, he came to bring division in some ways. As a matter of fact, he said, listen, the, the teaching of the gospel, it is, it is so powerful and it cuts so deep that some of your parents aren't going to understand because they believe in this religion or they don't believe in God or all these different things. And it's going to bring division between you, but you're going to have to choose between me or your parents. And so in this way, he brings a cutting division, but he brings unity to the sheep. His purpose is to bring a, a common language, a common purpose, uh, a, a common thread to his people. Um, that is part of him bringing unity. We read about this a lot in the opening chapters of Acts. Now, as we close out here, the last five or six statements that we have here, um, they are all independent. They all deserve their own time. But I'm going to kind of put these final five together and help you understand these are all about the salvation that Christ brings. Again, one of the primary purposes that Jesus came and was born in a manger was so that he could grow and that he could give his life on a cross and then be resurrected for the salvation of our sins. And so very, very quickly, number 16, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Number 17, he came to give us eternal life. Number 18, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Number 19, he came to call sinners to repentance. And then finally, number 20, Jesus came to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins and to take away our sins. Now, very quickly, this is this idea of atoning for our sins and removing our sins carries some Old Testament uh, imagery here. You remember there was a certain time where uh, the priest would have two animals that would come. The priest would sacrifice and shed the blood of one of the animals for the cleansing of sin for the people. But then there was another animal, a goat, that we, this is where we get the phraseology, a, a scapegoat. He would lay his hands on the goat, and there would be a transmission of the people's sins onto the goat. It was symbolic. And the goat would then be sent off to the wilderness to die. And so there was a cleansing of the sin through the shedding of blood, but then there was also the removal of the transgression. So there was a, there was a, it was, it was, this is the idea that God is not just doing a partial work. He is doing a complete and fulfilling work. And in the life of Christ, we see the same thing, that he has come not only to cleanse us of our sin, but to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. And it gives us an incredible, complete confidence in his work on the cross. Now, that was a whole lot in a little bit of time. But I just want to simply say this as we approach the, the Christmas season. I think all of the work, all of the purposes that, that Christ did to fulfill, uh, all that he uh, came to fulfill, uh, all of these things are amazing and they are wonderful, they are beautiful. And he did these in a span of, of three decades. He did so much work. But I want us to remember in the, in the midst of, of all of that that we've talked about tonight, that it all started way before he could ever talk, way before he could walk. It started because there was a young lady who chose to devote herself to the Lord. She chose to deny herself and her reputation. She chose to walk in obedience to God, regardless of who understood and who did not. And a husband that was willing to sacrifice his own life to honor his wife and to honor the Lord. 
and to bring a small child into this world in a manger, in a manger, in a lowly manger. All of this was accomplished. You talk about humble beginnings. Humble beginnings is how our Lord began. And in this Christmas season, I hope that we just embrace all of that Christ has done, but we remember that none of what Christ has done was possible without that manger scene. Amen. Now, Father, thank you so much for all your good work, all that you have done for us in your life. And um, we just want to pray, Lord, that you will help us as your sons and daughters tonight to remember, as cheesy as it sounds, remember the true reason for this season. is the birth of your son, the incarnation, that he did not uh, take equality with God as something to be held on to, but he humbled himself in the form of a servant to come to identify with us, to save us. And we are so thankful for that truth and that reality that we live in today. And so God, we bless you. We thank you for this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And they